Hello, my name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. It's my pleasure to bring you the first episode of the Quillette podcast. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, associate editor Toby Young and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. Over the coming weeks, we will be bringing you a range of diverse interviews with contributors and public figures from all over the world. For our first episode, Toby Young broaches the topics of white privilege, the coddling of the American mind, cognitive inequality, and the dreadful attraction of utopian ideas with none other than Dr. Jordan Peterson. There was a famous study done in Somerville, Massachusetts in the 1930s, large-scale attempt to remediate poverty in the hopes of decreasing antisocial behavior and alcoholism and, and a whole host of undesirable social outcomes. Kids were divided into two groups. It turned out that the intervention groups, the kids that had been granted all this positive attention by the authorities, did worse on virtually every outcome. Here's our recording of that interview. Thank you very much, Dr. Peterson, for agreeing to appear on Quillette's first ever podcast. That is extremely kind of you. No problem. I recently watched your uh, conversation with John Haight. I've been reading The Coddling of the American Mind. I wanted to kick off, if possible, uh, by briefly touching on their book and their hypothesis that the root of the anti-free speech problem on U.S. campuses and campuses elsewhere is a psychological malaise, that it's rooted in the difficulties millennials have coping with challenge, with unorthodox opinions, and so forth. Uh, do you share that analysis, that it's essentially a psychological malaise uh, confined to uh, millennials, or do you think it, it goes much broader than that? I would hesitate to lay it at the feet of millennials, not because there aren't some elements of it that are accurate, but because... I think that it should probably be viewed psychologically rather than as a consequence of group membership. I mean, the millennials are being educated by the baby boomers, essentially. And so why lay it at the feet of the millennials? Why not lay it at the feet of the baby boomers? Yes. But I, but I, but I think both of those ideas are, are insufficient in some sense because what I see happening instead is that people are in the grip of the of, of a set of warring ideas, and the ideas are much larger and longer lived than the people. Now, I see this as, a, as an extension of the same conflict that really split the world so badly across the 20th century, and, and part of that split is a consequence of the dreadful attraction of egalitarian utopian ideas. Yes. And they're very, very attractive, and you can't just blame people for that. I want to talk in a moment about why those ideas are still so attractive. Um, but one interesting development is that in the 1950s, when Raymond Aron wrote The Opium of the Intellectuals, it was largely a disease which afflicted the liberal intelligentsia, academics, public intellectuals, journalists for the higher publications. Uh, it seems to have since then 
in the past few years, completely metastasized. So in this latest incarnation, uh, what you call postmodern neo-Marxism, almost like a virus which the left have been kind of perfecting in a laboratory for 30 years, and they picked the perfect moment to kind of release it into the general population, and it has just gone completely viral. Um, do you think that that's true, that, it, that it, it's now affecting vast swathes of the West, not just the intellectual class? Yes, I, I do think that's the case. And I, I think the reason for that is, well, not only the dreadful attractiveness of these ideas, but the inevitability of the movement of ideas from the university out into the broader community. And how could that not happen? Everybody who runs things is trained in the university. So whatever happens there is going to happen five years later everywhere. What seems bad have happened in part, as far as I can tell, is that there's been enough subsidy of those who hold these ideas, the radical activist types, over the last 30 years, both public and private subsidy, public in the form of tax money and private in the form of tuition, who have produced a substantial, well-instantiated minority of radicals. And they've trained enough people to produce something approximating a tipping point. And the, the tipping point literature indicates that if you have between 5 and 10% of a population committed to a set of novel ideas, that that can tip the entire population. And despite the fact that it's a definitely a minority viewpoint. And I think we're seeing some of that now. I mean, there was just a recent book published on the British Labour Party, which claims, for example, that the entire British Labour Party has been taken over by identity politics radicals. And I don't, I don't think that's an isolated problem. The coddling issue is, is a complicated one, the one that Height refers to. I mean, from a psychological perspective, it's absolutely dreadful. And Height has written on this previously. If you're a clinician, you know that if you're trying to treat people who are anxious and nervous and prone to withdraw, that the last thing you do is set up safe spaces for them. That, that's completely contraindicated by everything we know about clinical interventions. And so these people who claim that they're acting on behalf of the mental health of students, first of all, have no, just, they have no justification for that claim. Not only false, it's actually it's anti-true. It's the opposite of what's true. So, and that's that's a very terrible thing. I, I also see this. I really see what's happening at the bottom of all this as something like a war on the idea of competence itself, or maybe even on the existence of competence. And and here's why, in part, like the the radical postmodern neo-Marxist types. The fundamental premise is that something like the West is a patriarchal tyranny. That's the stake around which everything else is, is organized. And if the West is a patriarchal tyranny, then those who succeed within that tyranny can't be competent. They have to be tyrannical. They have to be only motivated by power. That goes along with the essential Marxist claim that hierarchical structures are based on nothing but power, which is a completely absurd proposition, and also that they're due to capitalism, which is an equally absurd proposition. And But to maintain belief in the fundamental validity of the claim that the West is a patriarchal tyranny, then you have to go to war on anything that indicates that competence exists, because that's an alternative form of, of the construction of narratives or of hierarchy, and also that people who occupy positions of authority, let's say, in hierarchical structures are competent. And I really believe that that's, that's close to the bottom of this mess. It's hatred for competence. And so if one of the things you do when you hate competence is work to make students dependent and useless, then 
all the all the better, fundamentally. What is at the root of this? Um, at the, the the intellectual vanguard of this movement, what is it that's motivating them? Is it just rent-seeking of a fairly sophisticated kind? Is it that they want power and influence? What accounts for the terrible attractiveness of their ideas? And do they actually believe them themselves, do you think? Well, I I think the answer to that is actually relatively simple. It is the case that hierarchical organization is universal. It's far more universal than the Marxists even claim because they tend to attribute it to the, the vagaries of Western culture and, and capitalism, and then complain about the fact that resources tend to aggregate in the hands of a small number of individuals. All of that, that's all true, but it isn't capitalism of the West that produces hierarchy. Hierarchy is a way, way, way deeper problem than the mere West, or it's a deeper problem than human beings. Now, hierarchies appear to be inevitable and necessary all sorts of reasons, not least the reason that talent is distributed unequally and that we need access to people's differential talent to organize ourselves socially so that we can optimally solve difficult problems efficiently. That's the purpose for hierarchy. But the problem is that when you organize a hierarchy, you do this inequality. You produce inequality of prestige, you produce inequality of competence, you produce inequality of material wealth, opportunity, it's actually what that is for, in some sense, those inequalities, so that resources can be devoted to where the problem most optimally needs to be solved. Well, then what you have is a secondary problem, which is the problem of the comparatively dispossessed. Like the first problem might be absolute privation, right? People are deprived in their natural state. They have to eat. They have to have access to clean water and shelter. And in the absence of that, they suffer and die. And so then you have to solve those problems. And to do that socially, you have to erect hierarchies around the, around the problems and solve them. But when you erect hierarchies, you produce the problem of the relative deprivation. And relative deprivation still involves suffering and comparative suffering. And no one likes that. You know, even if you're a successful member of a hierarchy saturated with your so-called white privilege, when you walk out, on the street in a major city like San Francisco or LA or New York and you see homeless people, it's not that that doesn't force part of you to cry out against that injustice. And so the idea that the suffering that's associated with inequality could somehow be ameliorated by flattening hierarchy is unbelievably attractive in a positive sense. Like, well, maybe we could reduce the comparative suffering. Now, the problem is it's also extremely naive, that's one problem, and the other problem is it's also a set of ideas that can easily be taken over by people who don't so much like the poor, George Orwell's phrasing, as hate the rich, but it's more, they don't so much like the poor as they hate the competent, and that's a terrible danger, and you have to be naive to think that people aren't capable of hating the competent. One of the oldest stories we have most fundamental stories is the story of Cain and Abel, which is a story of hatred for the competent. Do you think that the utopian left's hostility towards biology and its offshoots, evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, sociobiology, and so forth, is because they know that these fields have produced an overwhelming body of evidence uh, that 
flat, equal, non-hierarchical societies are not going to work very well, uh, are at odds with human nature, um, at odds with the well, fact that talent's not randomly distributed, it's well, they, unequally distributed. Yes, yes. Well, I think some of it's ignorance. They just don't know the literature. I mean, it's not like the postmodern types in women's studies are trained sociobiologists. They don't know the animal experimental literature. They don't know the ethological literature. They don't know anything about biology. So a huge part of it is just ignorance. And then you get the blindness to the ignorance problem, which is if you don't know something, you don't know you don't know it. And so that's a big problem. Is if you don't know anything about biology, you have no idea how much you don't know about biology, and it's, it's a lot. And then there's a competing epistemological claim, which is that, well, biology is just another methodology, and it, it's it's... It's no more useful, let's say, than sociological speculation or gender theory. And then there's actual hatred for the data. And and no wonder. It's like, if you're an evolutionary biologist or a psychologist, and what you learned doesn't make you shudder, then you obviously didn't understand it. You know, like, one literature I know extremely well is the literature on, on IQ because I'm also a practicing clinician and have dealt with people across the entire cognitive spectrum from, from let's say, barely sufficiently cognitively able to function independently to genius-level cognitive ability, I have some sense of the actual differences between people, and they are absolutely massive. Who wants that? I mean, it's necessary because everyone can't have every gift. And if we're going to have gifts at all, that means some people are going to have them and some people aren't. And a fair bit of that is very uncomfortably rooted in our biology. And like no one can be happy about that because it contributes to that arbitrary unfairness we were talking about earlier. Now, if you are somewhat sophisticated about such things, you understand that nothing good comes without a cost and the cost of talent might be inequality, just like the cost of wealth itself might be inequality. That doesn't mean it doesn't make your heart hurt. And, and if you're a compassionate person, let's say, in the technical sense, so high in empathy, then any data that indicates the existence of profound inequality, and all of the data indicates precisely that, inequality of ability, let's say, as well as outcome, it's going to produce tremendous resistance. You know, here, here's, a, here's a fact. If you have an IQ of 83 or less, you aren't cognitively able enough to do anything in the American armed forces, and so it's illegal to induct you. Okay, so that's about 10% of the population. That's harsh, man. And if you have an IQ of 90 or less, it's not obvious that you can learn to read well enough to follow instructions, written instructions. And that's like 15, more than 15% of the population. I mean, this is brutal. If the liberal left are horrified and moved by uh, suffering and want to do something about it, why are they so resistant to the kind of facts that you've just presented? I mean, you, you, it seems to me that one can make an overwhelming case that low IQ, IQ below 83, is a huge source of suffering, privation, one of the major causes of poverty and so forth. So if you're a progressive that wants to do something about those types of suffering, why not take that analysis on board? Why reject the idea that uh, poverty well, is rooted well, in low IQ? Well, part of it is that that flies in the face of the hypothesis of the patriarchal tyranny, 
which once, and that, because that hypothesis is associated with the desire to blame all forms of inequality on uh, tyrannical social organization. And so you can re remember that axiom. That's, that's the God. That's, uh, that's the Ark of the Covenant. That's the thing that has to be protected at all costs. We're in a patriarchal tyranny, and everything bad is a consequence of that. And, and that's what holds, holds the radical worldview together. And so you can't let go of that axiom. That's like, that's God itself. And in the form of a patriarchal tyrant, let's say, or the assumption of a patriarchal tyrant, um, so you can't let any of that biological determinism in there. And so that's the cynical view, I suppose, in some sense. And the more benevolent view would be, we don't know what to do about it. You know, here's an example. Back in the 1960s, the Americans started the Head Start program, and everyone wanted Head Start to succeed, conservatives and liberals. You know, the liberals wanted Head Start to succeed. So that was the attempt to provide early educational intervention to poverty-stricken children across the United States, put them in preschool and to educate them. And Head Start ran for a very long time. It was the subject of very much scientific analysis, follow-up studies over a number of decades. And all of the credible studies came to the same conclusion, which was that if you put kids in Head Start, they leaped ahead of their peers developmentally, intellectually, in terms of behavior, in all the ways that you'd hope. But all the other kids caught up to them by the, by the age of, by, by grade two or grade three. And there were no cognitive benefits seen after that. Now, more Head Start kids did finished high school and fewer of them got pregnant as teenagers. But that looks like it looked like it was attributable to improvements in their social behavior rather than gains in their intelligence. So, you know, the hope was if you gave these kids a boost early, that that would produce a beneficial positive feedback loop. They can re learn to read a little bit early. They're better readers. They read more. So that gains would not only be kept as they matured in comparison to other kids, let's say, but that they might even build on them. And that isn't what happened. And that was a catastrophic failure. Now, there, there are a variety of reasons for the failure, perhaps that weren't necessarily attributable to the inability of early childhood education to mediate intellectual differences. But uh, fundamentally, it was a very expensive program, and it, it didn't do what it was supposed to do and, at all. And so we actually don't know what to do about the vast difference in cognitive function. It's, it's an unbelievably intractable problem. Now, my experience is we've got some data generated on this, but if you help people who are confused about their future develop a, uh, a credible life plan, I have a program called the Future Authoring Program that does that. That's authoring.com. If you help people build a future plan, a conscious future plan, their academic improve, their academic performance definitely improves, and they're more likely to stay in school, especially if they've been doing badly. So there are things you can do, but it isn't obvious that that's mediated through an improvement in cognitive function. So it's a tough problem, man. I mean, the IQ literature is a really rough literature. No one who reads that comes out happy. I recently got into difficulty, Dr. Peterson, by suggesting a solution to this intractable problem. I wrote a piece for an Australian periodical uh, in 2015, a, 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 a magazine called Quadrant, in which I said that the only way to attack the problem of cognitive inequality is to make a form of IVF available 
to the poorest 10% of income earners, whereby when the technology which enables you to select embryos to increase the probability that the child you take to term is likely to have above average intelligence, when that technology comes on stream, you make it available for free to these low-income families. And in that way, they can give their children a genuine head start. Head start doesn't work, as the research literature has demonstrated, but this actually could. Uh, and I, I, I very unwisely yeah, well, called this proposal progressive eugenics, and I was immediately condemned as a eugenicist, as though what I was suggesting was indistinguishable oh, yes. from Nazi race oh, yes. science. Oh, yes, well, you would be condemned. I mean, I would say that the, the motivations for the early eugenicists were precisely that. Never assume that your large-scale, well-intentioned social experiment will produce the results that it intended. It'll produce all sorts of results, many of which you wouldn't have foreseen, and a tremendous number of which will kick back against you really hard. Like, for example, it isn't obvious that IQ in and of itself is an untrammeled good. You know, I mean, one of the things that happens, for example, as, as women's IQ increases, the probability that they'll find a mate actually decreases. And so that's a problem. And, like, we, we don't know at all that selection for cognitive ability would be without its its catastrophic biological consequences. And then, of course, there is all the terrible things that happened as a consequence of the development of eugenics movements in the 20th century. And they were motivated by the sorts of considerations that you just described. But, but practically implemented, they produce all sorts of catastrophic consequences. This problem arises if you think about the classical liberal critique of affirmative action. So a classical liberal would say it's wrong to prioritize or penalize an applicant for a job or a university place uh, because they happen to be a member of a particular tribe or group and that they should be treated as individuals and assessed on their merits. Uh, but the problem with that is that that well, approach yeah. favors the smart and the smart have kind of become a tribe in their own right. And uh, to a certain extent, the populist revolts in America and across Europe are in part prompted by the meritocratic elites uh, accumulating all this wealth and power uh, to the exclusion of the uneducated white working class. And you can imagine, even if those meritocratic elites didn't engage in kind of provocative identitarian virtue signaling, such as, you know, white elites racially self-flagellating, even so, the, the populist revolts would have still occurred because this fundamental cognitive Inequality is becoming more and more pronounced. That's definitely a problem, and you see objection to that arising on the right and the left. You know, first of all, I'm not going to make the assumption that these hierarchies that we're talking about are fundamentally hierarchies of power, because I don't think they are. I think they're fundamentally hierarchies of competence. So, for example, when you go out to hire a plumber, you don't think about the net tyranny of the hierarchy of plumbers. So if you fragment the idea of hierarchy down to its real-world implementation, you look at the hierarchy of plumbers, the hierarchy of surgeons, or the hierarchy of shopkeepers, the people that you actually interact with, it's pretty bloody obvious that most of those people have the positions, they, the comparatively um, what we use, favorable positions that they have because they're actually competent. Maybe competence only accounts for 40% of the variance in social hierarchy placement, and the rest of it's arbitrary. If that could easily be the case, the, the data indicates that with IQ and conscientiousness, you can pick up about 
maximum of 50% of the variance in social placement in a hierarchy. But that's half. And then the other half might be physical health and random factors and some of the things that the leftists complain about, you know, systemic prejudice and that sort of thing. There's a whole grab bag of reasons why people might be improperly placed in the hierarchy in relationship to their competence. But devoting excess resources to smart people might be the price we pay for harnessing their ability. Like it's actually in our best interest collectively to ensure that smart people work as hard as they possibly can. That's assuming that we want the things they produce, and generally we do. So now you might say, well, that's not so good because they differentially benefit because, and unfairly because part of the reason for their success is that they won the genetic lottery on the intelligence dimension. But that's, that's too one-dimensional a viewpoint. You have to say, well, yes, that's unfair, but since we want to exploit intelligence as much as possible, because it's a public good, and maybe the fundamental public good, then we have to put up with the inequality, unless we can think of a better way of doing it. And we don't know a better way of doing it. So that's also why I don't like the utopians, because, you know, one of the things I really admire about the American system of government and its, its fundamental uh, assumption, founding assumptions, is that the founders of the American system assumed that the best we could do was to make a system of government that was reasonably free and functional, that that corrupt morons couldn't screw up too badly. And they included themselves in the list of corrupt morons. They weren't trying to perfect everything. And I think our societies actually do pretty well. We basically parse out resources in accordance with merit, even though there's a lot of error in there. And we do it well enough so most people aren't starving to death and we're generating some wealth. And I don't see a better way of doing it. So we have to have some gratitude for the consequences of inequality, as well as some heartfelt compassion for those who are suffering because of the unequal distribution of resources. Can I just go back to something you said earlier? You said that um, often a belief in science and reason and their transformative, beneficial social effects can often lead to various catastrophic outcomes. Do you think that's a problem for those of us who are engaged in this kind of battle with the regressive identitarian left? We often reach for science, reason, data, vast scientific literatures as a way of showing that their beliefs, their agenda, is built on sand, is empirically false and easily shown to be. But that can lead us to have a kind of overconfidence in science and reason. We talk about the values of the Enlightenment and the anti-Enlightenment strain in the identitarian left. But actually, the Enlightenment has as often, the Enlightenment tradition has as often led to, you know, the totalitarianism and persecution of the French Revolution and Soviet Russia as it has to the foundation of the United States and uh, liberal democracy, parliamentary democracy, and so forth. Well, the problem with reason is that it tends to fall in love with its own production and to worship them as if, as if they're the absolute. That's the warning in Milton's Paradise Lost because the satanic spirit he describes as characteristic of the great adversary of mankind is essentially the spirit of rationality and its tendency to fall in love with its own production. It's echoed in the story of, of uh, the Tower of Babel as well. 
our proclivity to build these totalitarian institutions that then fragment us and scatter us to the ends of the earth, right? a story that's as old as, as human self-consciousness itself. It's very difficult for intelligent rationalists to remain sufficiently humble. Now, if you meet highly qualified social scientists, one of the things they insist upon, they insist that if you do implement a sociological intervention, that you build in to your budget and to your plan evaluation of the outcome because you don't start from the premise that your intervention is going to work. You start from the supposition that it isn't going to work. And that's much safer, but it, it's not. See, the problem is, is that let's say you have a theory about how a system has gone wrong. Maybe it's based on all the data you could aggregate. And so you think you understand the problem and then you think you have a solution. And then you think that if you implement the solution, that it will produce the results you intend. And that's all extremely coherent, logically and rationally. But then you forget, well, you don't know what you don't know. And when you launch that on the world, it's not going to do what you think it will do. And so you bloody well better build in evaluation processes when you dare to do experimentation. And that is an extension of enlightenment thinking, but that's often forgotten by people who fall in love with their own theories. So, and it's hard. Like, there was a famous study done in Somerville, Massachusetts in the 1930s, large-scale attempt to uh, remediate um, poverty in the hopes of decreasing antisocial behavior and alcoholism and, and, and you know, ill mental health and a whole host of undesirable social outcomes. The kids were divided into two groups in Somerville, and the, the treatment group got everything that well-meaning social scientists could throw at them in terms of uh, what might improve their adult outcomes. One of the things they did, for example, was take all the kids from the relatively deprived urban areas and bring them out to summer camp two weeks a year. And they did reading interventions and parenting interventions and, and social behavior interventions, everything that, that you could think of that you might think would work. And when they finally analyzed the results, it turned out that the intervention groups, the kids that had been granted all this positive attention by the authorities, did worse, worse on virtually every outcome. And when they analyzed the data, and it took a long time, it was very shocking to everyone because the kids seemed to like the program and so did the people who were uh, running it and, and thought it was very beneficial. It turned out that one thing you shouldn't do is group antisocial kids together for two weeks at summer camp. The negative effects of doing that outweighed all the positive effects of every other intervention. Now, the famous study, the Somerville study, and I knew the woman who ran it. She spent almost the rest of her life going around talking to other social scientists. She was a very influential person about the absolute necessity of humility in the face of intransigent social difficulties and the necessity of building in evaluation processes into your large-scale intervention. Do you think one of the reasons when you debate and challenge the postmodern neo-Marxist left, one of the reasons they find it so difficult to engage with you and respond intelligently in a grown-up way to the criticisms you're making is because they're totally unfamiliar with being challenged. They've only ever thought about their own position. Um, and as J.S. Mills said, people who only know their own side and nothing of the other side know little of their own. Do you think that's one of the reasons that part of the reaction to some of your fairly measured scientific, evidence-based criticisms 
of the social justice warrior left has been this kind of hysteria and attempt to demonize you rather than actually entering into a dialogue, a grown-up conversation, because they're just so unaccustomed to being challenged. Well, I think part of it is lack of being accustomed to challenge, but I don't think that only characterizes the radicals on the left. I think, I think that's part of the course for, for human interaction. But I think it's also, there's a situational factors that are at play too. So if you, if you come out as an opponent, say, of a radical doctrine, radical leftist doctrine, it's obviously in the best interests of the radical leftists to start with the not unreasonable assumption that you might be the most reprehensible representation of their enemy. So that would be to say, well, if you don't like what we do, maybe you're a Nazi. And it's actually true. It's like, maybe you are. Probability is rather low, but it's not zero, and it would be damn convenient if it was the case. And so, and then, of course, you can't expect people in general to engage in sophisticated analysis of the opinions of everyone who makes the news you know, things get cut down to soundbite level pretty quickly. And so some of this is just technical difficulties. Like, these are complicated problems. And wouldn't it be nice if we could jump to simple solutions? And it would be simple for the radical leftists if I was a reprehensible right-winger, far right-winger. But it's not so good for them because I'm not. And then the devil's in the details, and there's plenty of details, and there's plenty of devil. And I know the literatures that I cite quite well. You know, and it's not, it's also not as if I'm not unsympathetic to the claims of compassion emanating from the left. I just don't see a clear route from that mindless compassion, let's say, which has a certain admirable quality, to any real solution. It's like, you know, hierarchies dispossess people. That produces dis differential suffering. Yeah, well, we should flatten the hierarchies. No, <laughs> that's wrong. But, but it's not obvious why it's wrong. It is wrong. It's horribly wrong, but it's not obvious why. So I have some sympathy for, even though I think what's happening on the campus is despicable, and I also think that many people on the radical left are motivated far more by hatred than by love for the dispossessed, but we don't know what to do about it without incurring, incurring even greater costs. The, the egalitarian experiments of radical uh, redistribution of wealth have produced nothing but absolute misery and that's real that's a real shame in some sense because maybe it would have been so lovely had the utopian schemes worked but man they really didn't how do you account for the current popularity for racial self-flagellation amongst um, powerful white men in particular so i'll give you an example the other day a senior bbc executive the editor of bbc4 which is a channel over here in the uk he said that the era of middle-aged white men standing up on television and explaining things uh, is over and we all agree it's over now i could think of three possible explanations for why he said that the first is is just an expression of white liberal guilt, self-loathing. The second is it's a form of communicating to uh, potential employers that he now speaks the lingo of the ruling class. He is conversant in this new religious 
ideology. So he's a safe person to promote up the hierarchy. Or perhaps the third explanation was that it's just a way of him signaling to his audience that he is a high-status white, a way of differentiating himself from low-status white people. So it's become a kind of high-status indicator to engage in this racial self-flagellation because a working-class white person would never do that. Do you th- which of those three strikes you as more likely, or do you have another explanation? Oh, I think I think those are decent explanations. I also think, you know, people want to have their cake and eat it too. So it is, well, not only am I a high-status person and, and benefiting differentially from my status, but I also want to be seen as a powerful advocate for the dispossessed so that I can share in that status as well, which I think is a rather crooked game. There's that. I also think there is some real guilt, some of which is warranted and some of which isn't. So let's say that you do have differential access to to financial resources. My sense is that what you should be doing with that money, something so good that you feel no guilt about the fact that you have it. And I think you have a social responsibility to do that. And to the degree that you're acting improperly with your money, spending on on impulsive pleasures, which have their place, by the way, but should be the central focus of your life, to the degree that you're not bearing the responsibility that's attendant on the possession of that wealth, then maybe you might be guilty for your position of relative privilege, and perhaps you should be. And then there's also the inevitable guilt that you're going to feel if you happen to be well-off, surrounded by people who aren't. Almost no one who isn't psychopathic can bear that without a certain amount of guilt. And you might say, well, why don't you just give away your money? It's like the answer to that is, well, that's not a very effective way of solving the problem. That's the fundamental issue. First of all, people aren't going to do it. And second of all, that's not a thoughtful solution to the, the problem of comparative poverty. Do you think one of the reasons, I mean, this is a more cynical uh, view is that um, one of the reasons diversity has trumped universal equality on the left if, 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 if you think that it's more important that there should be equality between different ethnic groups, between men and women, cisgendered and non-cisgendered people and so forth, that that's more important than universal equality, and it can sit perfectly happily with vast inequality within these particular groups, then that means as a privileged white person, you probably have to give up less. You probably have to share less than you would if there were aggressive redistributive taxation policies in place, for instance. I don't know what to think about that. I mean, I I think mostly that's just a consequence of of really muddy and naive thinking. You know, the, the first naive and muddy part of it is that you can actually specify in a finite sense the number of relevant groups. You know, short people get paid less than tall people, and unattractive people get paid less than attractive people, and introverted people get paid less than extroverted people, and less conscientious people get paid less than more conscientious people, and more disagreeable people get paid more than less agreeable people. There are infinite numbers of dimensions along which group identity can be established and and inequal and financial inequality demonstrated. Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to equalize along all those dimensions? Are you going to equalize everything? Are you going to equalize income and wealth? And how are you going to define wealth? Is that everything you possess? Does everyone have to possess exactly the same number of every item? What if you think of something new? All you have to do is think about it for a week, but actually think about it. You see that this is just its an absolutely preposterous scheme. But given 
but it sounds good and it can make you feel good because you're so egalitarian and, and there's no shortage of that. It also allows you to justly take revenge against those who have more than you. And we don't want to underestimate the pleasure of that. Let me bundle two questions into one, which is, do you think that the social justice warrior left has reached its high watermark? Um, that uh, uh, from now on, its grip on the most prestigious institutions of the West is going to loosen? Or do you think we're just in the nursery slopes of no, an ideological takeover? I don't, I don't know, but I, I certainly wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't assume that it's reached its pinnacle. I mean, th there's no reason to assume that. I don't think the universities have learned anything from this yet, as far as I can tell. I think they're, they're going to get far worse before they get better. Maybe we're at the middle of this process, something like that. We might be in the early stages of it still. We've got plenty to learn from this. So now I, that doesn't make me pessimistic because I do think, think that at the same time as the power of this ideological movement is maximizing, it's growing. The resistance to it is also organizing rapidly and becoming more and more sophisticated. So I don't see it as hopeless, but, but I think we're in for a bumpy ride. I think the UK in particular is in for a bumpy ride. Maybe it'll have to degenerate into Venezuela before we learn. And I think the UK is particularly in trouble, but we'll see. Well, yeah, God forbid, but it happened in Venezuela. So... I think the Labour Party there is very powerful and also unbelievably corrupt in this ideological sense. They've abandoned their classic affiliation with the with the working class, which I, which I think is a proper affiliation for the left, essentially, insofar as there is a proper affiliation, and and embraced identity politics wholeheartedly. Identity politics is a reversion to violent tribalism. There's nothing that will come out of it that's that's good. And the Labour Party, when I look at the major Western states, you know, it looks like, to me, it looks like the Labour Party in the UK has the best chance of fully implementing these sorts of policies, of having the opportunity to do that. On the, on the subject of organised resistance, are you starting a university of some kind? Well, I've hired people to build an online education platform. And, but we're not really conceptualizing it, I wouldn't say anymore, as a university. We're conceptualizing it as a universal education platform for adults. Uh, you know, when you use new technology, you can't really necessarily use the old forms and, and conventions because whatever an online education system would look like, it wouldn't look like a university, right, because the technology is just so different. And so I've hired three people to be working on that, and they're working on it diligently. We're, we're quite a bit ahead of schedule at the moment. We have complex and sophisticated development plans formulated, and we should have a prototype version ready in the next three to six months. You know, I think often the way to solve a problem is not to reform the no longer functional solution to the problem, but just to generate a new solution. And so I'm trying to do that, and I suspect it will probably fail because it's very, very complicated and difficult to do such a thing, but it's worth a shot. We're really concentrating on accreditation. Because that's where the universities have a hammerlock on education is through accreditation. So we want to build accreditation systems that can't be gerrymandered and distributed administrative systems that can't, that can't be hijacked by, by ideologues. We'll see. It's, it's 
It's a tall order. Well, look, um, at Godspeed with that, Dr. Peterson. My daughter's 15. She'll be leaving school in three years. I hope it's ready uh, for when she leaves school. But um, listen, thank you very much indeed for giving us so much of your time and for being our guest on Quillette's first podcast. Well, good luck to Quillette's podcast. I hope you guys are as successful with your podcast as you've been with your journalism, because that's been quite spectacular. So, and more power to you as far as I'm concerned. Quillette's a great example of the consequences of a single individual deciding to actually do something, let's say, to solve a problem rather than to merely complain about it. Because Claire has done a remarkable job of building Quillette into a, well, really a power of an organization in a very short time with almost no resources. Very impressive. Yeah, it's incredibly impressive. Very good talk. Okay, good to talk to you. Bye. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Colette.com where you will find more content.